Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 21st, 2019, the In the Loop edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm taping from a hotel room overlooking Times Square in Manhattan, in Gotham, in New York City. I'm joined <laughs> by, of course, Emily Bazelon of Yale Law School and the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Where are you? I'm in New Orleans, which is lovely and nice and warm, too. I'm excited about that. Wow. And... John is who knows where. Maybe he's in New Orleans, too. We don't even know. But he's not here. But instead, we have GabFest regular GabFest regular sub, Josie Duffy Rice, president of The Appeal, from her home in Brooklyn, probably. Hello, Josie. How are you? Hi. I'm actually at, from my home in Atlanta. But um, Oh, that's right. You is, are not in Brooklyn anymore. Dang it. I am not. I am um, in Atlanta, which is not like Brooklyn, but did host the Democratic debate last night. So we are, you know, on the map. That kind of wow. puts us on the map, Josie. It's not why you're on the show, I but know. actually it makes us all see like <laughs> a little more with it this morning. Very coordinated. On today's GabFest, Gordon Sondland drops a bomb at the impeachment hearing. Then Democrats debate again in Atlanta with Josie <laughs> as Mayor Pete surges. Is his surge going to last? Is he now the front runner? Then, should Stephen Miller be fired for his pre-White House emails where he circulated white nationalist ideas and racist ideas and general awfulness? Plus, we will, of course, have cocktail chatter. So, everyone was in the loop, Emily. Were you in the loop? <laughs> in the loop about what? <laughs> about the whole quid pro quo. Everyone oh, was in the loop. <laughs> That's what Gordon Sondland said when he testified on Wednesday. I, so, I were you have- in the loop? I was not in the loop. I clearly wasn't in the loop since I don't even know which loop you're talking about. But it was really interesting to hear Sondland implicate Pompeo and uh, our vice president, Mike Pence and Mick Mulvaney, and to assert that this was actually an official channel. It wasn't the channel of diplomacy that the career professional diplomats thought they were working, at least until they kind of figured out what was going on. But, uh, you know, according to Sondland, these were direct orders from President Trump. And that makes sense that his top officials would be read in on those orders. So Josie, uh, I'm sure you were in the loop because you were in Atlanta. But what what do you think is the most (laughs) important thing we learned from this week's impeachment testimony, particularly the testimony from Trump lickspittle Gordon Sondland? Yeah, it was interesting watching Sondland yesterday because he struck me, especially in the beginning of his testimony, as someone who really didn't have anything to hide. He was, you know, pretty straightforward about the way that this went down and the number of people who were involved. And he said explicitly, right, this was a quid pro quo. Rudy Giuliani was acting on on behalf of the president. And if the question is whether or not this was a quid pro quo, there is no question. And everybody was involved. I, I, I think about him talking about uh, how the president said 
this isn't a quid pro quo as sort of a way attempt to exonerate himself prematurely. And it seems like Sondland kind of was on to this a little a little on the late side, but um, but clearly has been, you know, is not one of those people who is going to defend the president at any cost. So, Emily, Sondland said explicitly that there was a quid pro quo for the White House meeting between Zelensky and Trump, but that he didn't come out and say for certain that there was a a QPQ, as I write myself, as a quid pro quo about the military <laughs> aid that had been appropriated by Congress. I mean, that seems to me a not credible, um, a not credible claim. But it may be that he he doesn't know that it existed. But he was not willing to come out and say that it existed yesterday. Is that important? Uh, I think it is kind of well. It's somewhat important. I mean, if you're following the Sondland line of evolving testimony, it's important, and perhaps you will evolve further. I thought what he said was that. Trump didn't explicitly confirm that, that he presumed that was why the military aid was being frozen, but he hadn't heard that from Trump's mouth, whereas he had heard that with the meeting. And I mean, it it doesn't, I guess part of what um, one is grappling with here is the, if someone's being clear in all their implications, but they're using code words like investigations, um, or they don't explicitly say what the other half of the payback scheme is, or the bribery scheme, to use the Democrats' word, then is if but everyone assumes everyone knows that's what they mean does that really let Trump off the hook and i think that when you look at Bill Taylor's testimony in which he was you know saying to Sondland like look this is what's going on it seems like everyone was read in it was clear this did also involve the military aid and when Trump is saying now i want nothing or i wanted nothing which he seems quite devoted to this line of defense then you have this problem that he on, that Sondland only made it clear there is no quid pro quo after it was coming to light that they were withholding the military aid. And, you know, there's this whole question that we've talked about before a little bit about whether an attempted crime is still a crime. And I just wanted, I liked this tweet from Rachel Barco, who's a law professor at NYU. She was saying, okay, here's my 1L criminal law review of attempt law person who pointed a gun at the bank teller with a bag for the money in his hands and suddenly realizes that he's being watched on security camera says to the teller, I want nothing. Guess what? Still an attempted robbery. So that's another sort of piece of this to keep in mind. Yeah, it's interesting because um, being like studying criminal law, but also studying actual criminal cases, it's so clear that in any court, um, this would hold up as you know, in a in a legal act attempt. I mean, also conspiracy. Sort of. Last night, Kamala Harris referenced the scandal in Ukraine um, as a, a, a criminal enterprise, basically signaling that the president and a lot of the people who work for him knew what was going on and went forward with it with that knowledge. And I thought um, it's just so you know, just saying this isn't a quid pro quo doesn't get you out of what this is bribery, right? But it might actually get Donald Trump out of impeachment. It's very clear that most of the party is willing to die on whatever hill he provides for them to die on. And it's one of the times, right, when you would think getting fired from your job would be a lower standard than getting prosecuted in criminal court. But as we can see, it seems like that's not necessarily the way that this is going to play out. My favorite detail from the testimony from Sondland on Wednesday was his point that it didn't matter to Trump that the investigations be carried out. Only mm-hmm. that they be announced. 
mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. if you think about it, is so uh, so revelatory about what Trump wanted to done. It didn't. The corruption was a matter of complete indifference to him. It was simply the optical political point. So, I mean, Josie, you you just hit on hit on this uh, a minute ago, but it's it seems very unlikely that just because some former lackey ambassador to the EU has said there's a quid pro quo that now Republican senators are going to fall over themselves and give up on their defenses of President Trump and be like, well, we we will certainly convict him in a trial. It seems that there will be a new Republican line of defense. What is that line of defense going to be, Emily? The line of defense is, okay, this happened, or maybe it happened. They may have to hold on to the maybe there since Trump is so insistent that it did not. But it's okay. It doesn't rise to the level of removal. And it's just the president directing policy. In fact, the fact that everybody was read in means this was official White House policy. And the president was simply leveraging his relationship with Ukraine to get something that was perfectly okay for him to ask for, i.e., uh, looking for false information about his political opponent. But if you don't say the last part out loud or you say the Bidens deserved this because what Hunter Biden was doing was improper or illegal, then the rest of it seems um, somewhat plausible as a defense. So my guess is that they will make up whatever defense they need because there is sort of no sense from the Republican Party that it has to follow from their previous statements, that it has to be reasonable. It just has to exist. The standards are so bottom of the barrel at this point for how they are willing to defend the president. I think the first thing that was brought up yesterday was sort of Biden or Obama or Hillary by the by the president. I can't, sorry, by the Republicans. I can't remember um, exactly which of their scapegoats they were pulling out. But it's it is you know I thought Ken White on Twitter had an interesting post yesterday, which was basically like their defenses. Screw you! Like it is on everything else, right? There, it's it's pretty shameless. What I also find so demoralizing are the disgusting attacks on the public servants who are acting here, including people who were until five minutes ago people in totally good standing within Trump world. So Gordon Sondland is somebody who is treated until until a week ago as somebody who is a Trump close associate. He's a Trump crony of the highest order and someone with firsthand knowledge and immediately as soon as he testifies he is he is spurned as a, a hack as unreliable someone who didn't take notes as a as a as a dumbo and then more impressively you have this parade of public servants who have testified earlier um from vinman to uh jennifer williams george kent and bill taylor and the smearing of these honorable people who have spoken up at huge cost themselves and their careers is just shocking. And and it's incredible that you have a Republican Party that is so willing to make roadkill out of people who are, are truly acting honorably in the interests of the best interests of the country at a great cost themselves. And it's, um, I mean, I said this on the show last week, I think one of the true long-term prices that we will pay for what's happening with impeachment is that public service, particularly public service at the highest level in the White House, is just going to become less and less attractive. And the quality of people you're going to attract is lower and lower because it is people are being shamed and 
and attacked for for behaving in completely honorable ways to protect the country. And that's incredibly depressing. I just have to focus on Sondland for a minute. I'm so confused by him. I had this idea that he was like this guy who never meant to get into the middle of this. It must be ruining every moment that he ever like thought about Donald Trump. You know, it just that he would be dying to get home and kind of scurry off the stage and be ashamed. And it wasn't like that at all. I mean, Josie's right. He seemed comfortable. He seemed to kind of be into being the center of attention. And I don't know, for me, it, it's it's coming at such a reputational cost. I mean, he seems like someone who, if not outright lied, omitted many pertinent facts, can't remember anything, like did all this um, kind of dirty work for Trump. I, it's so incongruous to me, his seeming relaxed nature as he trots back to Europe to continue doing this ambassadorial job and my notion of how he should or would have responded to all this. Well, I mean, I think you presume there's a sense of shame that still exists in people. One of the things that this I do, because I feel away, it so strongly. <laughs> you feel a sense of shame. Yes. Like On you're his not path. somebody who would take a job in the Trump administration, are you? Well, right. It's like, but I didn't realize that shame being dead had spread beyond Donald Trump down to Gordon Sondland. It's just a different way of thinking about um, the choices you're making and the situation you're in, which is foreign to me. But you're right. Yes, it does reflect that same uh, shamelessness that Trump has. Dear West Coast GabFest listeners, don't forget we have a conundrum show. Our annual conundrum show is going to be live at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California on Wednesday, December 18th. And Adam Savage of Mythbusters is going to join us as a special guest. We always have a special guest for the conundrum show to provide exterior wisdom and counsel to a confused GabFest audience. So please join us if you can be in Oakland on December 18th. At the Fox Theater, go to slate.com slash live. You can also tweet to us with the hashtag conundrum at SlateGabFest or give us a conundrum at slate.com slash conundrum. So we've gotten so many great conundrums from you all. I was just looking, glancing through the conundrum list. There was one, would you rather only be able to get advice from your kids or never be able to give advice to your kids again as a choice? Oh, God. (laughs) That's a great question. That is a really great question. I think... I'm glad your two-year-old's giving you advice, Josie. He told me to go play mama the other day, which it was his way of saying, leave me alone. I think I'm going to have to go with never give my kid advice. I'm going to have to throw him under the bus on this one. I don't think I can live by his, uh, by his, by his rules. So if you want to hear the discussion of such things, such fascinating questions... Please come to our live show, slate.com slash live for tickets, December 18th in Oakland at the Fox Theater. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. 
It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The 37th Democratic debate was Wednesday night in Atlanta. I didn't even know it was in Atlanta until Josie told us earlier, but it was in Atlanta. Uh, And... uh, wasn't notably filled with fireworks. It was a, another debate. There were a bunch of candidates there. Things happened. So Biden seems to remain kind of the zombie candidate, the zombie campaign. Did the debate reflect that, or did did Biden appear to come out of that debate with any more strength than he went into it? Josie, what did you think? You know, <laughs> I thought that. Well, he started. Biden started really rough. The first few sentences out of his mouth felt. Um, very stuttery, like he was if he felt very out of it. I think he had some good answers last night. I, I didn't think it was as um, bad as some of his other performances. I will say that the moment where he says that the only African American woman to ever be elected to the Senate has endorsed him and Kamala Harris is standing on stage was so painful. Um, and embarrassing. Okay, and so re- on one hand, give him the benefit of the doubt. He just misspoke. He meant to say first woman senator, not only woman senator. And then on the other hand, it's like, dude, how'd you get that wrong? Like Kamala Harris is standing right there. Like right. there she is. And right. and then on the third hand, does it matter that he misspeaks like this? I mean, his heart's in the right place. It's not like he isn't pleased that a second black woman was elected to the Senate. I don't know. I just go back and forth. Here's a guy who's obviously smart, I think has been capable and maybe still is to some extent capable, um, but just seems a few beats behind um, the rest of the the field in terms of being able to think on his feet, being able to sort of assess what's going on on stage and answering questions in a way that feels to the point and frankly coherent. In the moment, it's quite galling to watch it because you just feel sorry for him but also really frustrated and if you know that this is an issue for you right if you know that the issue your issues around i mean the other moment he had last night was where he said the thing about domestic violence and he said we're going to keep punching at it and punching at it you know (laughs) it just is like yeah (laughs) it's just like you almost had to work to find an analogy that terrible it's just so clearly the worst analogy you could use and What it says to me is that he doesn't seem adequately conscious of the landmines he has proven himself to be likely to step into. He didn't really seem contrite after that moment of kind of erasing Kamala. He didn't seem to realize the terribleness of the metaphor. It just seems like where everybody else is like, whoa, man, he's he's kind of walking obliviously ahead. The biggest news that I saw in the campaign this week is the Buttigieg surge 
and his pulling ahead and seeming to be pulling ahead in Iowa. His sur- the sign of the surge that I uh, have identified is that I no longer need to write out his name phonetically to remember how to pronounce it. It has been said to me so many times that I can just actually say it without without having to write it phonetically. So that's that suggests to me he's on his way to victory. Emily, what is it that's going on that has Buttigieg up in Iowa? And does that reflect something that is uh, a big movement in the campaign? I mean, I think it must be the softening of Biden's support in Iowa and the kind of casting about for a more youthful version of Biden, who is on the moderate-ish side of this primary field and also is a white man. Uh, Josie, just to bang onto that, so do you think that that this is, that what's going on is that there's this kind of growing sense of concern in the center, the center left, the more moderate elements of the Democratic Party for a candidate who is not Biden and is to the right of Warren or Sanders. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Buttigieg kind of represents this young guy who kind of has at least relatively similar politics, who's quote unquote pragmatic and is new to the sea. And it's actually not particularly surprising to me that he's surging in a place like Iowa, especially because of his own sort of geographic roots. I think what happens after Iowa will be the real the real question of whether or not he can maintain some momentum here. So both Warren and Buttigieg, who are certainly the media darlings and the elite darlings of the race, have almost no support from African-Americans who are the most important large voting block you can identify in the Democratic Party. So, Josie, what, what to make of that? Do you think this is something that if one of them wins Iowa, wins New Hampshire, like becomes a front runner, that... African-American voters uh, will full full-throatedly move over to one of them? Or do you think they have problems with African-American voters that that go deeper than just not being Biden? Well, I think that's two very different situations with Buttigieg and Warren. I mean, Buttigieg has repeatedly made, um, I guess the, I guess the like political word would be gaffes um, with the black community, um, including this week with this having, uh, what was it, 400 people sign on in South Carolina, black support, 400 black people who supported him. Turns out half of them weren't black. A lot of them didn't support him. Just sort of repeated misunderstandings of how to engage with this voter block that obviously matters significantly. Warren doesn't seem to have make those same sort of mistakes, right? She's garnered a lot of support from prominent black women, including like a lot of black activists. And so I, I don't, I don't think that the the struggles that they are facing moving forward are going to be the same. I do think that like they both are going to have to increase their level, the support that they're getting from black communities and, and some other demographics as well. But I don't think that Pete Buttigieg's approach to doing that has proven to be sustainable. And I don't think Warren has that same problem. Emily, Amy Klobuchar, who is also positioning herself to be the the non-Biden moderate alternative to Warren and Sanders, dug at Buttigieg this week and implying that a woman with his credentials would never be a serious presidential candidate. That seems like true, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this sense with like someone like Buttigieg where it's like, here's we found him. Here's this guy who obviously is meant for, you know, the White House. And 
we're willing to just overlook the fact that he has done nothing um, to indicate that he is capable of holding this position. Granted, like he's more qualified than Donald Trump. So the standard right now is very low. But this sense of like, wow, aren't we lucky we got him in? You know, aren't we lucky that he's decided to show up and um, and take on this this test, even though he's not qualified. No one ever says that when women <laughs> take on, you know, uh, big roles that they're not qualified for. It's never sort of a sense of, aren't they brave or aren't they lucky? Well said. Yeah, I mean, the thing that gets me about Buttigieg every time is that he has won 8,500 votes. Like, that's how many votes it took for him to become the mayor. And that's that's little bitty. I just worry right. about that. Right. Do you, So when you look at this field, the all the leaning Democratic candidates come with some obvious problem. They're too liberal. They're too young. They're too old. Uh, Buttigieg is rarely talked about. He's a, would be the first gay president. Probably that's not going to be too much of a big deal during the election, but who knows every potential candidate, people find a thing to get anxious and worked up about around their identity in a way that seems both deeply wrongheaded and hugely unproductive and often racist or sexist. What are we, Emily, as as voters to do about that? Right. Well, I think there's the what the tricky part here is that it's totally acceptable to worry about the political consequences of someone's identity in a way that you think could boomerang against them and against winning the election. The problem is that it quickly starts to bleed into creating the reality that you are worried exists outside of you. And I don't know what we do about that exactly, because every time we start hand-wringing about this, we just kind of add fuel to the fire. Do you guys think... um you have Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, the two leading African-American candidates in the race. Deval Patrick is coming in. Booker and Harris have not gotten anywhere as uh, really. I mean, they both both their campaigns are flagging. Do you think either of them has a chance to revive their campaign or are they are they done and dusted by now? While I don't think it's impossible at all, especially for Harris, I think it's really difficult. And to your point, like I think being a black candidate in Iowa, it has been done, right? It's been done once. <laughs> it's not the most consistently uh, progressive state in the nation, especially around issues like race. It's definitely not close to one of the more diverse states in the nation. To Emily's point about the politics, it is worth engaging with the consideration that part of the reason her campaign and also Booker's campaign perhaps um, are struggling is because of their race and also um, in Kamala's in Kamala's situation, also maybe because of her gender. Obviously, it doesn't um, necessarily map that way across the board, but it certainly seems to be a variable that um, does have an impact. Tom Edsel had this very interesting piece. Tom Edsel is always very thought-provoking in the New York Times, arguing that Warren is going to be a major drag on Democrats in swing states, down-ballot Democrats in swing states, if she is the nominee she will be a real problem for the party as the nominee because she is so far to the left. So, Emily, I know we've talked a little bit about this. Do you think that the Medicare for All plan is going to turn out to have been just a catastrophic error, that she has locked herself into a policy dream that's unachievable, 
which she did. Well, for- she did, I would say, a little bit give herself or try to give herself some wiggle room this week when she talked about initially uh, proposing a plan to basically have a public option, a way to choose to get onto Medicare, and then introducing a full-on Medicare for All bill in her third year in office. Uh, that was at least a little space between her and Bernie Sanders' proposal. I mean, I do really wonder about the politics of making this uh, centerpiece of her campaign. For a long time, it wasn't that centerpiece. But now the amount of money she's proposing on spending this is so enormous that it begins to overshadow her other sprightly plans. And I do wonder about whether she has moved too far to the left on this and the problem for downstream candidates could be significant. What she would say, her sort of standard line about this is, you know, we have to push, we have to fight for big things because it's the same amount of fight whether you try to do something small or big. So let's have the big fight. I don't know if I buy that, but that's the response. Yeah, I think it's, I really think it's an interesting question because on the one hand, yes, She's right. It's a really interesting idea as a as a potential solution for the healthcare crisis. It's you know it's a it's a model that's done in other countries and it works. On the other hand, given where we are as a country right now, it seems grandiose, and the cost the the budget number associated with it is so ridiculously high that it I, th- I think that's all anyone sees. It makes her seem unrealistic. It alienates a bunch of moderates. And it feels to me that it was a totally unnecessary move, that she didn't have to lock herself to that. She didn't have to come up with a specific plan. I know her her brand is coming up with plans, but I think she could have elided that and ducked around that for longer than she did. And now it is going to be the first sentence in every attack on her from the right. And everybody's going to say whatever X trillions uh, is what she wants to spend. She's a dreamer. She's delusional. How can you take her seriously? And and that's a terrible shame because she's the smartest person in the race and also the best policy person in the race. And and the policy isn't even that bad. It's just just that the, the country isn't there yet. I, I feel like it's a it's one of these cases which is like a it's a something where she is in a better world. This would be a legitimate proposal that would be well considered and people would be very excited about it and it would be debated. But we don't live in that world, and so now it's just a a cross to bear for her for the rest of the race. I do think that one of Elizabeth Warren's um, attractive qualities to voters is that she is willing to say, you know, willing to say what she believes and go for the bold thing and not be apologetic about it or evade the question. So while I think she is in a messy position with this Medicare for all thing, um, to some extent, I also think the other position was untenable for her, where it felt like she was sort of avoiding the question um, and that she didn't have a plan. When you have made yourself the candidate who is willing to speak truth to power, um, you know, for the working man and always having a plan, and then your healthcare answers are kind of wishy-washy and vague, I don't actually know how sustainable of a strategy that was for her because it's it seemed to it seemed to be it's so perpendicular to her personality. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on this your dear Gabfest and on other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to sign up today. And we are going to do our plus segment today about South Dakota's interesting new mm-hmm. anti meth campaign. It might be pro meth, not clear. Some it's it's a campaign <laughs> about meth in any case. Uh, and we're gonna talk about that. 
Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up today and hear that segment. The president's homunculus on immigration, Stephen Miller, uh, got in trouble this week. Emily, what, what did we learn about him over the last couple of weeks that we didn't know before? Yeah, well, we confirmed things we knew already. How about that? Katie McHugh, an erstwhile Breitbart writer who has uh, left the far right behind, leaked a ton of email she had from Stephen Miller from before he went into the White House. This is when Miller was Jeff Sessions's top aide. It's a different era in which being um, the most restrictive senator on immigration was actually like a fringe view, okay? I mean, Jeff Sessions introduced this anti-immigration bill uh, before Trump was in office, and he was the only senator in his committee to sign on to it, including among Republicans. Miller was trying really hard at the time to get Sessions' attention. It was kind of hard to get attention for this guy. And he had this these relationships at Breitbart, and he was feeding them incendiary materials from this white nationalist site, V-Dare, and from other sources, that disgusting French novel, The Camp of the Saints, which blames the demise of Europe on immigrants. You know, these are really... Um, gross sources. I don't think there's anything surprising about finding out about these emails. Uh, It all tracks with reporting I was doing before the election about Sessions and these kind of deep anti-immigrant views. There's also a ton of um, discussion of the 1924 immigration restrictions, which were responsible for changing the country-based quotas in a way that reduced the number of immigrants from Italy and Eastern Europe, i.e. reduced the number of Jewish immigrants, as well as African. Um, immigrants and other people of color, not that that was the word people used at the time, but these were quotas put in place to try to preserve the North American Anglo-Saxon stock of the United States. We knew previously that Sessions was in love with these restrictions because he talked about them on the radio at the time. There is the kind of deep horror, I would say, in the fact that Stephen Miller's own family is Jewish immigrants from Belarus much like parts of my family in this way that I just find so unsettling and upsetting to have someone, a a Jew acting like this and saying these things. I just like so don't understand it and wish that was not his identity. And and yet to see all of this confirmed and to see the strategy he was working out with Breitbart, it's sort of a major piece of evidence about where he stands. And then I think the weird, confusing part of this is that these are also views Donald Trump has expressed. So calls that Stephen Miller should resign and leave the White House are accusing him of uh, holding views that his boss holds. Why would they fire him since it's kind of all of a piece? They're weirdly kind of sort of denying it and uh, accusing the Southern Poverty Law Center, which uh, published the emails of libeling him and standing against bigotry. Like, what does that even mean? Well, I think what's to me, what's in Congress here, which you're hitting at at the end there, Emily, you're punching at that you're punching and punching at the end is. Gee, thank you. is that we already know Miller by his deeds. He is the right. architect Everything of the travel Everything he's done ban. is worse. He is the architect yeah. of removing temporary protected status for hundreds of thousands of people from Central and Latin America. He's the architect of separating migrant families and putting children in cages. He's the architect of stopping, rolling back DACA. He's a monster in what he does in the open. So I, am, I certainly... Uh, 
am not surprised by what he did in secret before he had this role, but it is it does seem it does seem odd that the reason that he people think he should be bounced from the administration is that he sent a bunch of emails with links in it to a bunch of right wing journalists back in 2015. Just look at what he's done in 2017, 2018, 2019 to actually ruin the lives of millions of people. That's all the evidence we need about why he should be fired. Right. I mean, he's a white nationalist. We know that. We know, you know, that last month in America, we resettled not one refugee, um, which is the first time that that's happened in, I think, I mean, literally decades and decades. We are living in a time where a white nationalist is president. Many of the people who run his policies are white nationalists. And, you know, by the way, Jeff Sessions is also a white nationalist. And so Stephen Miller, like, is that's why he was hired. Right. It's not just like a side part of his personality. He has literally has the job he has because he is willing and ready to at any given um, moment keep immigrants out of this country make it impossible for them to get in, and especially immigrants of color, and maintain what he wants, which is, or create what he wants, which is a country of white people um, and of white people in power. It's the the emails to me, I mean, I do think it is remains interesting that nobody in the party um, is calling for him to, to be fired, that this level of racism has been accepted just, you know, completely by the Republicans. But the emails themselves, it's like, what else would you expect him to be emailing about? I think that, Josie, that gets us at a really interesting point, which is that mainstream conservatism, which does not really exist anymore, sort of Main Street conservatism, no longer has the capacity to respond to this. It's like all of its defenses, its entire immune system has been destroyed by having associated itself so strongly with Trump or having walked away from the party. So there's no legitimacy left there's no anti-racist right to speak of anymore. It's completely marginalized, which is terrible, which is a shame that we need. There needs to be a, a place in the conservative movement for pro-immigrant positions. And, I mean, conservatives themselves should want it because actually there's no reason why immigrants are necessarily going to end up liberal or progressive. There's a, a long history in this country of in fact, immigrant groups becoming pretty conservative as they as they spend time here. And the fact that the right has no interest in in absorbing immigrants and in thinking about their them as contributors to the country and in thinking about them as contributors to politically is is really unhealthy for the political system because they're it's it just it means that the conservative movement will just get further and further and further alienated from immigration in a way that is completely toxic and 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 ha- will and will ultimately lack the capacity as we're already seeing to respond to what are clearly outrageous racist behaviors is there a problem here for liberals and democrats too in the sense that it's becoming hard to figure out how to call for limits on immigration that don't seem like they're just about keeping brown people out of the country right like we used to have a kind of center discussion of immigration not so long ago. President Obama talked this way in which you emphasized border security. You talked about the idea that people have to wait in line and you weren't accused of being a racist. And 
I fear that given how divided Americans are about immigration, that if liberals lose any capacity to talk about limits and everything gets associated with white nationalism, that's a problem. You know, unless you're going to be for open borders, and I think in the end these politicians are not, there has to be some way to try to bridge these gaps. And these kinds of revelations about the the anti-immigrant forces like it's important to understand their intellectual legacies i completely agree with that and yet i feel like the discourse about this is so polarized on both sides and maybe because it's because that center right is missing the way you're talking about david but i also feel like liberals are pouncing mm-hmm. on the rhetoric without figuring out how to talk about this in a way that doesn't sound like they just want to let in every single person who wants to come. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. It it feels like, I feel like that's been a problem among Democrats for a while, just not really having a cohesive kind of theory behind immigration policy that can be translated to the voting public in a way that makes sense. I mean, what you can say for Donald Trump, right, and the Republicans is, you know, their policy might be racist and inhumane, but at least it's straightforward. Um, and that, you know, that they have like that going for them. It it does strike me, though, that like, the alternative position may be that any improvement on immigration is an improvement from these people, right? Any improvement on immigration might be, you know, any more progressive view on immigration might be tenable for the the left, given that the standard right now is separate kids from their families, refuse to allow refugees in the country, and hire a guy who sent emails from what is essentially like a right-wing blog, you know, conspiracy theory blog that's only tenant is the supremacy of white people. So to your point, Emily, I think it's just sort of interesting, interesting is the wrong word. I think it's sort of horrifying to see what people are willing to put up with, right? Like what voters are willing to put up with, what legislators are willing to put up with, and how little this moves the needle for the right, which just a few years ago had also a more compassionate perspective on immigration, a more compassionate perspective that still was overly restrictive. I want to close this topic actually with just something I was thinking about, which is this: these calls for Trump to drop Miller. Obviously, it's going to go nowhere. There's no chance of it. But I, I was thinking, has Trump ever dropped any close advisor, close person for being worse than expected? And that huh. has not happened, except for Rob Porter, who and the claims of spousal abuse against Rob Porter, who was a, a White House official a couple of years ago, you may remember. The only reason people get bounced out of the Trump universe is for not being sufficiently loyal or because you stop serving your purpose. It's never because you're a monster. Like there are tons of monsters who have served him, who've done outrageous things, but they're never they're never bounced for being a monster. They're bounced for other reasons. So Stephen Miller may one day be out of favor with Trump, but it won't be because he's a white nationalist and a racist. It'll be because, you know, said something, he didn't sufficiently defend Trump on something that Trump cared about at that moment. Think where Rob Porter would be today. I don't know that today he would even, you know, be removed Um it's it's really it was john kelly who drummed out rob porter presumably right and it's hard to imagine oh, right. Mick mulvaney doing that if trump was against it right right yeah it just seems you're right i mean it there are the only thing that matters to this man is loyalty to him as long as Stephen miller will show up on the sunday shows and and lie for trump and uh stand by him when he arguably commits pretty severe crimes i think he'll be fine
All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are on a Sunday show, line for whatever cause you're lying for, Emily, and you afterwards you're like, I need a drink. That was too much lying. What are you going to chatter about as you have your drink? <laughs> so uh, as our listeners may know, John Bell Edwards, the Democratic candidate for governor in Louisiana, won this week. And I was struck by a tweet from Nick Gorovich. He posted pictures of some of the ads that ran against John Bell Edwards that are all really dark and scary ads about criminals. They Some of them are immigrant criminals. Some of them are black criminals. Doesn't really matter. The idea is like John Bell Edwards is letting everybody out of prison to roam the streets. And what Nick Gorovich pointed out was that these ads didn't work this time. And that actually Edwards had strong turnout by the Democratic base and crossover voting from Trump voters. I was paying attention to this because it's just these sorts of advertisements have been incredibly wildly successful in so many elections in America in fear mongering and also in making policy. And the idea that they could uh, fall flat is tantalizingly exciting. Now, obviously, uh, (laughs) this is just one election and it's not a tactic that's going away. But in this moment of falling crime, um, when Louisiana, actually, where I happen to be sitting, is enacting criminal justice reform, doesn't seem to want to be the number one carceral state in the country. Uh, Perhaps we're actually seeing some kind of shift. Josie, what is your chatter? So I'm reading this book called For the Love of Men um, by Liz Plank uh, that I expected to like, but I'm like even more than I thought I would. It's sort of focused on how our how harmful masculinity also harms men um, and how in order to rethink what a world of gender equality looks like, we actually have to um, have more compassion um, and more understanding of how men are harmed in our social constructions of masculinity. It's extremely well done and very thought provoking. I already gave a copy to my parents and plan on reading excerpts of it to my two-year-old son who has no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm going to end up. He's ready for that, Josie. He's going to understand that completely. That seems very age-appropriate. Yeah, it seems totally fine. Right, exactly. I I find the book just so well executed um, and highly recommend it. So my chatter is the most pubescent chatter I will ever do or have ever done, and uh, I can't justify it. What a lead-in. I know. I'm ready to see where this goes. So I don't, I can't even now remember why, but I was with my kids and some other kids um, in sort of the pubescent, pubescent age children. And I stumbled across the Wiktionary, the Wikipedia dictionary page about cannabis slang. If there is a better Wikipedia page to read out loud to children, I have not found it. So I just want to recommend that you go to the cannabis slang page because there are so many terms for pot. And they're so awesome. <laughs> so I'm just going to start at random. Here we go. African broccoli, Antiguan rocket, AK-47, alligator cigarettes, Amsterdam's finest, Arathi, ass bandit, amnesia, Ami, Barney, BC, Bible worksheets, bin bag, bis, bishop, blifter, bloop, bob, bob hope, babadi, bobby brown, boner soup, bongo, boo-boo shit, boogity brown, boon, bread, brown buddha, brown frown, bubble kush, bud, budski, burger king, cabbage, caracas, Caribbean cabbage. CDs, Cess, Cheatham, Checkers, Chiba, Cheech and Chong, Chegg, Chess, Cherry, Chickity Freddy, Chicken, Chocolate, Chronic, Chronicles of Narnia, 
and so on and so on and so on. And it's just and it just goes on and on. And there are pages for terms for pot, pages for terms for people who smoke pot, pages for, for people who deal pot, all these amazing it is the richness and vitality of the English language is manifest so deeply in this. And I was so pleased. It's like the Eskimos have fifty seven terms for snow. We have fifty seven thousand terms for pot. And I'm like God God love God love the pot smokers of the world who've come up with all of them. Um, Bob Hope surprised me in there. I'm trying to understand that one. Uh, let's see. There was a that's, note. With that's Bob the Hope, one that threw which, you off. Yeah, that? that was the one. <laughs> I, I that really was the also one that threw me off. I also really like the genre of Wikipedia pages to read your children. Um, I didn't know that that was a, you know, a ranking, but I'm glad I now know which one is number one. Oh, you know, I now I remember how I found it. Actually, I'll tell you in one second. Now that you say that, uh, the Bob Hope apparently Do we comes from know? a reference <laughs> from David Foster Wallace. Oh, okay. Um, but the reason I came across it is that one of my kids had asked me, oh, what's the most popular Wikipedia page? And I was just started to look at what the most popular Wikipedia page was overall. And then one in the top, and then we were looking at the top 100, and somewhere in the top 100 was something about cannabis. And so I clicked on that, and then ultimately through a, a kind of river of links, I ended up at the cannabis slang page. Anyway. Uh, we also collect great listener chatters from you all. You can tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest, and uh, we got two folks: Trisha Nocidi and Barb Zach at, at T Nocidi and at Zach Barb. Each tweeted to us about a really interesting advancement that seems to have been made um, in hydrogen fuel creation, also in solar in solar uh, harnessing the sun for useful industrial processes that bill gates has funded a company um a very secretive energy startup which takes thousands of mirrors and points the mirrors at a single spot and it's like the classic sort of how you fry an ant thing that people did as kids i guess a version of that is you point all these mirrors at one spot and it creates a huge amount of heat it's very it's very james bond death ray kind of moment and one of the problems with solar is that it's never been able to generate enough heat to do certain industrial processes that are very energy intensive, um, including making uh, making cement, making or making concrete. I can't remember which one, cement or concrete, one of them. And this, for the first time, they've done it, and it's an amazing advancement. So there are a bunch of stories about this secretive energy startups solar breakthrough which you should check out that is our show for today the GabFest is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher is bridget dunlap Derek clemens is helping me here in new york mara laser is helping emily in new orleans josie is being helped by herself you should follow us on twitter at slate GabFest and tweet chatter to us there and you should join us for our annual conundrum show in oakland go to slate.com live for tickets to that december 18th show for Emily Bazelon and the always game Josie Duffy Rice who got up at all hours of the morning to help us. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Uh, how are you? So I haven't checked how many South Dakota listeners we have. I'm not sure. We probably we must have some good number because we're... We Wait, are. North Dakota, David. North Dakota. No, South, South Dakota. Oh, really? 
Yes. Oh, I was so know-it-all about that, and now I'm wrong. <laughs> that was a very Man, David Plotsy move you just did there. Can we leave that in? <laughs> I did, and then I was wrong. You're right, though. When you when you intervene like that, you're right, like 99% of the time, whereas I sounded so cocksure of myself and then assholically was wrong. Okay, onward. <laughs> uh, so South Dakota uh, was in the news this week mostly ridiculed for a new public awareness campaign about meth and the campaign consists of a series of posters some which show the the outline of the state some of which show very healthy looking south dakotans next to a tagline meth we are on it and south dakota has spent about a million well they've spent about five hundred thousand dollars so far out of a budget of a million dollars at 1.4 million dollars on this meth campaign and they were absolutely ridiculed for this campaign and mocked for being like, don't they, are they saying that everyone in South Dakota is on meth? Are they encouraging people to take meth? What is it? Why are they doing this? And uh, we're going to talk about whether this is, whether this is a terrible or amazing public awareness campaign. I just to tip my hand, I think it's amazing. I think they did a fantastic job. Good for them. It's a, it's a, it's a much better awareness about what they're trying to accomplish than, than, something it's someone said like if if their campaign was don't do meth it's bad for you that would not have gotten anyone's attention no one would notice it and instead they have this campaign that people are suddenly like aware of and talking about and probably there's a conversation about meth in south dakota that's a much richer conversation than there was a week ago yeah i gotta say i the fact that i know what the meth campaign is in south dakota means to me it was pretty successful um it's a it's a bold move, and I still don't really know what them being on it means, um, like what the policy and, and practice decisions uh, are actually going to be that are instituted in the state. But I actually not only now know what the campaign is, but really kind of looked into how bad the math problem is in South Dakota and have a lot more awareness about that, too. So I, I am actually kind of in support of this outrageous um, slogan. Yeah, that's what the governor said. Exactly. She was like, hey, you all are tweeting about us. You're talking about us. It worked. That's what advertising is supposed to do. I am hung up on whether they were deliberately confusing about I'm on it or whether they knew from the beginning like that was or they thought from the beginning that was the feature, not a bug. Also, what do you guys think? What are the different layers of meaning? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.